Welcome to another edition of the AMSSM Sports Medcast. I am Jake Wessels, and today we have the pleasure of interviewing John Letty. John is a physician and a world expert on concussion and its recovery. He is the current director of the Concussion Clinic at the University of Buffalo. Thanks for being here today, Dr. John Letty. Um, you're welcome, Jake. It's my pleasure. I'm um, looking forward to talking to you. So uh, one of the things that we are excited on this first CRN Spotlight, um, your research spotlight podcast, was to ask uh, a little bit about how you knew about uh, the grant funding for the CRN and how you chose to apply for that type of um, funding for your research. Um, well, two years ago now, uh, I remember it being or maybe it was the year before, I, I remember there being an announcement at the national meeting that this was going to happen. A little meeting held at the national meeting where you could go and speak with Stephanie and I think Andy Peterson and some other people about what the CRN was and what they were interested in, um, in looking at. And this was the first time they had it. So it became clear that uh, AMSSM was, was serious about supporting uh, research. I think they wanted it to be uh, clinically relevant uh, because of our membership, because we're all practicing sports medicine doctors. And so I thought, well, uh, you know, this seems like um, a great opportunity to, to sort of um, expand our work uh, a little bit. And I thought it would be nice to engage uh, other centers that are part of uh, AMSSM, that have AMSSM physicians um, in in um, looking at specifically this, this topic of uh, exercise treatment for concussion, early exercise treatment uh, for concussion. So I, um, I spoke with um, colleagues, uh, Tina Master and Matt Grady in Philadelphia at Children's Hospital and uh, Rebecca Mannix and Bill Meehan um, up at Harvard uh, Boston Children's Hospital in Boston. And um, we decided to submit a, a multi-center uh, trial application to look at early exercise versus the stretching intervention in uh, adolescents with sport-related concussion. We'd been doing that work in Buffalo for a while, but we wanted to make it a, um, a larger study, more centers, and hopefully recruit more subjects so we could do different types of analyses and also introduce some, some um, more uh, specific measurements and treatments to see if uh, we'd find anything interesting there. So. One of the things we decided to do was look at the physical examination very carefully of, of the oculomotor and vestibular systems. We decided to try to get an idea of what the intensity of exercise people were doing at home by giving them heart rate monitors to take home. We didn't do that uh, successfully in our initial trial. Uh, we also looked at something called ecological momentary assessment, which is kind of a fancy word for an app that allows students to report their symptoms of concussion multiple times through the day on their phone. So that would be a new twist as well. So that was the impetus. It was, you know, um, a sizable grant, $300,000 for two years. And uh, that's why we decided to apply. That makes a lot of sense. I have here that you uh, received the award in 2017. So you were right. It was uh, three years ago when you were at the, the meeting. And that that's a, a cool uh, way to kind of uh, segue in, into what this work that you're that you're doing is you're asking and kind of learning about what is the result and, and the help of early uh, activity for, for those patients who have concussions. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, more about how you're, you know, came to this 
idea or how, how did you come across this as, as a treatment? Well, initially, uh, we, we thought about this in Buffalo more than 10 years ago now. So time goes fast. But the reason was, as a team doc uh, at the University of Buffalo, I was treating a lot of concussed athletes. Um, and about, you know, 15 or 20% of them weren't getting better in the sort of typical time frame. And back then, we were just telling them to wait till their symptoms went away. But, you know, anyone who's been doing this in, in athletes over a little bit of time, they realize that, well, most people do okay with concussion, then they get back to play. Some don't. And, and by just having them do nothing, I saw some of them were getting worse, not better, you know. And, and I, I started to become frustrated because you're a sports medicine doctor and you know what it's about. It's about a specific diagnosis and early targeted therapy. I mean, that's what sports medicine is, really. Right. So Dr. Willer and I, Barry Willer, my colleague here at uh, UB, who's a, a world-renowned traumatic brain injury expert, uh, we got together and started discussing how maybe we could apply that sports medicine approach to concussion. And so I'd done, you know, some cardiology rotations. I'd learned how to do treadmill um, stress tests. And so we just took a cardiac approach to it and um, decided to uh, take a, a stress test from the cardiac literature that was safe and could be used in patients after uh, MIs. And then try to, get, try to it, like with, with an anginal equivalent, try to find out for the concussed person what a, a symptom threshold would be or an anginal equivalent essentially for the brain. And then just do a subthreshold exercise program and see if that would work. Now, initially, we did it on those only those um, guys and gals who had prolonged symptoms because we were afraid if we did it too soon, we'd make things worse and actually delay their recovery. You know, back then, people thought if you did exercise too early, you would actually delay recovery or do more brain damage. So we started off small and we did a, a few non-control trials and it seemed to work. It seemed to help them recover faster, especially when you compared it to doing nothing. You know, when you do nothing with some of these people who go on beyond two, three weeks, they can be symptomatic for months. But when we did the subthreshold exercise approach, they, they were recovering in a matter of weeks. So long story short, we uh, then started thinking about rather than waiting until people were symptomatic for weeks or months, try to do this earlier on. Maybe it would speed recovery and maybe it would prevent some of that, you know, whatever you... 20, 25% from going on to delayed recovery. And so that's why we did our first trial uh, that was published in JAMA Peds uh, last year. And that was successful, but it was mostly done in Buffalo. It was also done in Canada. So there was two centers, not, uh, not three, but uh, we just wanted to expand it, add, add some more you know, physiological variables and, and, and do a better study and see, a better design study anyway, and see if we could replicate it and maybe get more information, uh, more granular information on symptom reports, on um, the dose of exercise that might be effective. We don't know that right now. You know, does it work everywhere else? Uh, can it be implemented in other centers? What's the effect on, on uh, vestibular and ocular motor systems, if, if anything? So that was, that was the idea. Yeah, that, so that, that first study that you published in GMAPEDS kind of showed, in general, an increased or a, a shortened time to recovery on those who had the sub-symptom exercise as, as compo uh, compared to the, the stretch control group. And so that's kind of one of the, the 
goals for this is to more largely apply, have more centers and, and check in. What are some of the findings that you're in, in with your data so far on this new study? Unfortunately, COVID has affected the study um, negatively. Luckily, we had recruited a pretty good sample size before COVID hit. But we didn't quite meet our target sample size yet, and we were hoping to, uh, in fact, we'd gotten what's called a no-cost extension to continue the study at no cost to AMSSM, but just to enroll you know, more subjects so we could meet our, our predetermined sample size. COVID has essentially eliminated that as an option because right now, at least in Buffalo, there are no sport concussions. <laughs> I, haven't had, I haven't had one in months because there are no, no high school sports and we're studying high school students. So uh, we, we, I don't have a final data set available yet. We're, we're still putting that together. One of the, the things that we, you have to make sure is when you uh, have multiple centers uh, trying to do the same thing, that you are very consistent in not just uh, how you apply the intervention and how you measure it, but also how you interpret when recovery has taken place that sometimes is a little challenging because we defined recovery uh, three ways. That is, they had to be back to a baseline level of symptoms. So their symptoms had, from their concussion had to be gone. That doesn't mean the symptom, their symptoms from life are gone. That means okay. the symptoms that they had from concussion are gone. They had to have a normal physical, and we define that very specifically, you know, normal vestibular, oculomotor, neurologic, and cervical exams, basically. And they had to be exercise tolerant on our treadmill test. So they had to have no concussion symptom exacerbation on the treadmill. Now, the way we did this was by monitoring their symptoms every day. So we could look back and find out in the data set when they were reporting a baseline or normal level of symptoms. And then we'd look at the next study or physician visit and find out, well, did they satisfy the other two criteria, exercise tolerant and normal physical. So looking at, this, at the symptom reports is, is an, an important thing because they may have been recovered four days before they saw the doctor, really. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how we define it. But also there are some patients we're, we're finding who looks like they recovered from their concussion, but didn't return to play for quite a while for other reasons. Maybe they had a neck injury that was still being treated. Maybe the parent was not comfortable with their child going back yet. So again, clearance uh, to return to play to sport is different than recovery. And so we have to make sure in the data set that we're getting the right date for that, you know, for the results to be uh, valid. So we're still doing that. Interesting. How, you've mentioned uh, tracking their, their symptom score on a daily basis. Most of our listeners are practicing clinicians. How, how did you go about collecting this data? Um, you mentioned an app earlier. Yes, it's a, it's a phone app called Recoups. I'll spell it R-E-C-O-U-P-S, Recoups. Uh, it was developed by a very bright guy named Doug Weeb at the uh, University of Pennsylvania Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And it's a phone app that essentially prompts the uh, student at different times of the day. We picked, I believe, late morning, kind of mid-afternoon, and then evening. And it asks them to fill out the post-concussion symptom scale I think for this one, I'm sorry, it was the post-concussion symptom inventory because they're, they're um, adolescents. Three, you know, three times a day. Now, not everybody 
did that. Obviously, compliance is an issue when you're dealing with uh, teenagers. So we have some people who only did it once, some that did it twice, and some did it three, three times, fewer. So that's, that's one way you can get daily symptom reports. In the study we did uh, earlier, we had them go to a web, we gave them a link to a website, and we texted them once a day, and they would uh, click onto the website and fill out their symptoms there. But you know, having a phone should, should make it easier, I think, because they do everything on their phone anyway. It'll cook, cook your dinner and serve it to you if you do program it right. So the phone, I think, is, is ultimately a better way to do it. Now, it doesn't, have, doesn't mean that everybody's compliant with it, but we got pretty good response, you know, c- uh, compliance with uh, the phone's uh, symptom reporting on a daily basis. Uh, so that, that may be something that's more available in the future in, in case uh, doctors or maybe, you know, you know I, I'm not sure family doctors would do this, but, but certainly team doctors and trainers um, who are following, you know, teams and college athletes and high school athletes, they could very easily do this and, and keep track that way. That sounds really interesting. And um, I, I think that that's one of the struggles is trying to figure out that sweet spot of when do you let them recover and when do you start to have them uh, get back to activity. What are some of your thoughts or the things that you found through your research that can help a clinician kind of to guide themselves in recommending uh, like a sub-symptomatic return to, to activity based off of your, your data? Yeah, that's a great question, um, Jake. So, you know, not everybody is going to have a treadmill in their office, of course, or access to that. You know, college teams will and, and certain high school teams will. So, there, there are different ways to do this. Um, but for, you know, the busy clinician, I think the principle is what counts more than, uh, say, the, the specific way we do it in Buffalo. So the principle is that, and, and the Berlin statement from 2017 reflects this, that initially kids have to rest uh, for, you know, at least a couple of days. And I, or I, I would hope that most kids after a concussion probably would stay home from school the next day if it happened during a week. You know, if it happens on a Saturday, then they can rest Sunday and, and maybe able to go on Monday. But they really have to rest for a couple of days. They don't have to lie in, in a dark room under the covers. But, you know, going to school after a concussion and trying to keep up in class would be tough. But generally, if they can relatively rest for a couple of days, most people and most people, their symptoms start to come down and stabilize. At that point, then they should be getting back into their uh, physical and cognitive activities, but identifying any threshold that increases their symptoms. And we use a sort of a general rule of two points. And again, this, this is not something they know before they come in to see you, but you can certainly say, look, you know, if, if you are trying to go back to using your computer or reading or just walking and, and you're doing something for a while and your headache increases by two points compared to where it started before you started that activity, then you should stop there. Uh, and rest for a while, take a break. But if it doesn't, you can do that as long as it takes. You know, if that's 10 minutes, okay. If that's 40 minutes, that's fine too. It's just, you know, kind of know or or get a feel for where your threshold would be for different activities and then uh, stay below that for a while. And there's no, you know, there's no set set time to do that, but we'll use a day, you know, typically uh, as as a time break. Um, and then try to, you know, if you're feeling okay doing that, try to, try to do it a little longer or a little harder 
um, and see where your threshold is again. Generally, the threshold increases and, and you can uh, therefore do the activity for more time. So that's a general sort of get back into life type of thing. Um, for athletes, you can sort of give them a general recommendation, you know, get on a bike and just pedal lightly. If your heart rate uh, savvy, then, you know, try to try to do that at 50% of your maximum heart rate for 10 minutes or so, or until your, your symptoms go up by two points compared to uh, where you were before you got on the bike. And if that feels good and, 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 and we tell them to stop when their symptoms go up, if that's, that feels okay, you've stopped, you're some, you know, uh, then try it again the next day. You may find you can go longer. And basically if, if somebody can go at that same level two days in a row without making their symptoms worse, then we ask them the next day to increase it by, uh, you know, five or 10%, whatever uh, you want to go by. And that might be five beats per minute. Uh, in heart rate. And then again, you know, try that again for two days. If you're feeling no increase in symptoms, the next day you go up by another five or 10 beats and you can kind of play with it a little bit. Now that's, that's sort of a general way to do that uh, without having a treadmill test, but it, 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 it helps them if they can have a heart rate monitor. Uh, the way I, I, I sort of um, conceptualize this, this is using exercise as medicine. And the dose is the heart rate or the intensity. So if you take too, too little of the medicine, you don't get an effect. If you take too much of it, you get a side effect. So knowing, again, knowing that heart rate where you're exercising at, at each, on each day at each session and how that heart rate relates to your symptom exacerbation is very important because you don't want to underdose or overdose. So that's sort of the, the key. They really have to have a heart rate or a good way to measure, you know, if, if they're used to doing it by feeling their neck or their wrist great. But, you know, most people need a, a, some sort of a device on their wrist. And you just progress it that way. We even have a paper published in Sports Health earlier this year that gives clinicians um, a, a handout to give to patients where they don't have to have a treadmill test to do this. And it's it's just like I explain, we give them uh, heart, rate, uh, heart rate intensity parameters each day, and we give them a, a scale of symptom exacerbation that tells them to stay at the same level, go up or go back to the prior level. So that was in sports health early 2020. And so that's a very practically oriented way to do this. It also gives handouts on if you've had a treadmill test or a bike test, uh, and even a handout, I think, if you don't have a heart rate monitor, I, I forget that part. But uh, anyway, so you don't need to do treadmill testing to implement this for athletes. That sounds, that sounds really, uh, really helpful for our, you know, for myself and for any other clinicians listen to this. The last question I have for you was related to the CRN. Are there um, unique aspects to this grant funding or other uh, mechanisms along with this type of funding that, that are, are unique to the CRN compared to other ways that you can get funded through your research? Well, the CRN is unique, I think, for AMSSM in that it's a substantially uh, greater level of uh, funding than, than AMSSM has done in the past. I, I know they've had uh, grants for $20,000 a year, more than that, maybe up to 50000 at one point, but this was $300,000. And so it's, you know, it's a substantial amount of money. Now, having said that, to do a multi-center trial over two years with $300,000 was challenging. You'd be 
uh, <laughs> I think surprised how how much that sounds like it is, but how how um, challenging it is to do multi-center trials with that kind of funding because multi-center clinical trials take manpower and manpower, you know, simply eats up your budget. Again, I'm I'm very grateful for the funding that AMSM SSM gave us, and I think we did a pretty good job up until COVID stopped us. We were gonna to have to extend our trial a little longer because we had some recruiting issues, but we would have, I think had COVID not happened, we would have gotten our, um, our sample size. As it is, we got pretty close, but if we don't find an effect, say, if we don't find a significant effect between aerobic exercise and stretching in this trial, uh, one of the issues might be uh, power, might be sample size. Um, now, I don't think that's going to invalidate, you know, the, the study. I think we're going to get lots of good information. Um, we still are, are um, collaborators meet, meet every two weeks. And we've come up with about, I don't know, 15 different topics for different papers and ideas that are going to come out of this trial. So it's going to be a rich data set. It's a fantastically specific and rich data set. I'll say that. Yeah, that sounds that sounds really interesting. It sounds like the CRN, you know, grant ha has enabled you to more readily approach this goal of of translating your recent work at University of Buffalo to a broader a broader population and at least attempt to see if you can reproduce it at other sites. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. And I think um, the other thing about the CRN is uh, we got great help from Stephanie and Andy and everybody who's involved. They were just absolutely supportive of everything you know we we tried to do and helped us work through things. Uh, we had a data data safety monitoring board led by Dan Herman in Florida, and and that was again, you know, we we reported regularly to them, and they helped us work through some of our our trials and tribulations as well. So, you know, the CRN has been really set up to provide you with expert support in terms of statistics and study design and, you know, helping you work through the trials and, and the issues that, that inevitably come up uh, and to make sure that you're on your toes and you're collecting your data and that it's safe. You know, we, we don't want to, of course, do no, we want to at first do no harm. And I'm, I'm proud to say that even though um, the other centers weren't really familiar with this, uh, we had no adverse events throughout the entire trial in, you know, well over a hundred kids. So that's, that was gratifying. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you that we don't have any, um, we had nobody who was harmed by the intervention. So that means we were doing it in a safe way. Excellent. Um, so that's but again, nice. the CRN, the CRN committee was, was just tremendous in its support. And I, I can't say enough about them. Well, to our listeners out there, this, for more information on the CRN, you can go to our website, amssm.org and search for the Collaborative Research Network. Thanks, Dr. Letty, for taking the time to talk with us today. It sounds like the paper um, we'll look forward to later this year or, or, or next year sometime, depending on uh, when you can collect more of this data. Thanks again to all of our listeners. Thank you, Dr. Letty. All right, Jake. Pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. I'd like to thank you, the listener, for your time, and we hope you'll join us for the next episode of the AMSSM Sports Medcast.